the Lord put on a topic on my, you know how you do when you kind of read different books, and uh, sometimes on some of the smaller books, I just like to kind of read them through in one sitting, and um, and so probably over a month ago, I did that with the book of Malachi, and there was a phrase that kept kept standing out to me, and uh, it was this comparison of uh, what God would say and then God said, and yet, this is what I say, and yet, this is what you say. And I want to look at uh, some of those here, and uh, just, we're going to go through them, actually. We're not studying the book of Malachi here, but I, I do want to list them out. Uh, one, two, in Malachi, the Lord says, I have loved you, said the Lord, and yet you say, I've highlighted here, in what way have you loved us? Uh, there is my honor, or where is my honor? And yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You have offered food at my altar, and yet <clears throat> defiled, I'm sorry, thank you. And uh, yet you say, in what way have we defiled you? My name shall be great among the nations. Yet you say, oh, what a weariness to sneer at it. And you bring uh, the stolen and the lame to offer. 218 to 14, you have depart, departed from my ways, and I do not receive your offering anymore. Yet you say, for what reason? Uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? 37, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? That's phenomenal when you think of what Dan shared this morning, that whole cycle. So this book is not written at the beginning, of course, of the history of Israel. This is like long relationship with God, right? And uh, so for them to say, yeah, we're not sure how to return or what way, how should we uh, return to you. Um, 3.8, it says, will a man rob God? And yet you have robbed me, yet you say... In what way have we robbed God? 3.13, your words have been harsh against me, said the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And you you say it's useless to serve the Lord. So it's kind of interesting. And as I read through these, I thought, man, um, how many different voices kind of get in our head these days? I'm sorry, let me just back up here. This is a cycle that Dan was mentioning this morning. Uh, and by the way, this is not just in the book of, of uh, Judges, right? All through Israel's history, you see this. I mean, it's exemplified for sure in the book of Judges, but this is Israel's history, and uh, you see that Israel serves God, and then he falls into sin and idolatry, <clears throat> and then Israel's enslaved. They cry out to God, and God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. And uh, they go back to serving the Lord. And so you just see the cycle over and over again, as was mentioned this morning. And uh, as I was just pondering these things, I I just thought, you know, today, what are the voices that we're listening to? What are the voices that are are kind of, uh, you know, uh, resonating in our ear? And are we discerning those voices that are influencing? And are we clear, uh, can we clearly distinguish what God is saying and what man is saying? And uh, <clears throat> I love this passage in Matthew 16, 1 through 3. Uh, we're not going to be able to look at all the different passages, but you'll remember it. 
And uh, it's where the Pharisees and Sadducees had come before, and they said, can you give us a sign? And, uh, you know, Christ, you can see he's pretty impatient. And if, if there was any group that, that he was impatient with, it was these guys that should have known. And uh, he says, what's the matter with you guys? He says, you, you're asking for a sign, and uh, you can look at the weather. You can say, okay, when the wind blows here, this is what the weather's going to do tomorrow. You can read all this stuff, and yet you don't understand the times that you're living in. And I think really that same exhortation should, should be given to us today. We should not be walking through today and say, man, I don't know what in the world's going on. And hopefully by the, by the end of our 45 minutes here, we'll be able to have a little bit better grasp on that, that we should not be walking through day-to-day clueless and be saying, man, there's so much confusion today, and yet I don't, I don't understand it. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get why we're here uh, at this particular uh, time in our history and what's going on. No, God wants us to understand. And uh, <clears throat> so as I thought about that, I thought, what is causing all this instability around us? And I actually, <laughs> this is one of those messages where, you know, when you get into it, and I was like, man, I'm way over my head. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know where the stopping point should be, and I don't know how deep it, we, you know, obviously we don't have that much time, but, but, um, and so I've actually, I'm only going to hit like two out of eight different things that I had listed out. Uh, to me, I think with the, the most important, but, uh, you know, we're in a culture where everything, and I've underlined that, is open to be redefined by the individual. Truth cannot be known, no regard for God's existence or authority. And then the other one, it goes right with that, the undermining of the credibility of the authority of God's word in the Christian circle, not the secular world. I'm talking about in the Christian circle, broad term, right? The undermining of the authority, and we've seen that. It's been coming for a long time. So what... (laughs) What I want to do this morning is actually the first thing to look at. Let's let's kind of back up a bit and uh, let's take a look at some of the huge cultural shifts that have moved us away from God. And we're going to cover, now we're going to hit them like really quick, but we're going to talk about traditional and we're going to define, okay, what were the characteristics of the traditional culture? You can see I have a time frame there. For those that you are on Zoom, we'll get this posted. Sorry, I don't know if I'm in the way. I'm going to read it. I'll try to step out of the way once in a while. But, uh, yeah. <clears throat> okay, and then we have uh, modern uh, culture. And inside the modern culture, we have this uh, kind of a, a, a subcategory, enlightenment. And I want to spend a little bit of time in defining that because therein lies where we saw a real tipping point of, um, of what we're seeing today. And then, of course, we have postmodern, and, uh, and then uh, maybe you're familiar with this term metamodern is what we're using today or what the, the big boys uh, say that we're into. So I do want to just take a little uh, kind of a look and say, okay, let's look at the characteristics. Look at, let's look at the journey. Let's... Let's, um, and we've all have heard these things. And, it, it, you know, we hear, hear it through the media. We hear it through the talk shows. We hear it through the news. We hear it through the, with the movies. And uh, you, can, you, can, you can peg some certain movies to hear. And, I mean, they just encapsulate the whole culture 
uh, within a matrix is one of those uh, when you talk about postmodernism. <clears throat> so let's look at the let's look at the traditional uh, cultural uh, characteristics, and I'm just going to read them here. It's not I'm just hitting like bullet points. So back then in the 13 to 1600s, we had religious stories of this world and life beyond. I mean, that's how they conducted their worldview. They acknowledged that there was something higher than themselves. There was a there was an emphasis, a priority on the spiritual, and it was they accepted the intangible. It was an ag, <clears throat> agrarian a way of life, mainly farming, etc. Um, you stayed in the world where you were born into. Everything had a set place. God, there was a recognition of God. There was a recognition of the supernatural uh, realm. Uh, and it furnishes the basis for all morality, human dignity, truth, and reason. That doesn't mean that that era was all godly. I'm not saying that at all. But there was a recognition that there was a higher power, that there was, you know, that, that there was that there was an authority out there, right? And as, as corrupt as it became at times, uh, but yet it was accepted. So then we moved into modernism. 1600 actually was a long period, and we're going to look at that. But you're going to see that every transition was a critique of the past one. And I think that's so important because, you know, every cultural shift comes on the playing field saying, we've got the answers. And yet they're not looking to God. They're looking to man. They're looking to self. And we're going to see that every cultural shift just takes a crash. And we're going to look at some of their own testimonies, the, the, the philosophers out there. But modern is a critique of traditional. Religion loses its authority and is shoved out by science and reason, skepticism, tolerance, industrial revolution. And every, every one of these words, I hope you can kind of frame uh, what it's talking about, production, rapid change. We're going to be able actually to change ourselves. We don't have to stay within the bounds of, uh, you know, this uh, either, you know, this the socialistic order. Uh, we don't have to stay within that, and uh, we can better ourselves. Those are good things. But there's no thought of afterlife. Individualism, uh, loneliness, competition, and dissatisfaction. And uh, those are their words, not mine. Those are their words as they do their surveys. Uh, <clears throat> and then within this modern time, you have the rise of Isaac Newton, right? The scientists and and a lot of different guys that are, are, and they're good things, right? They help us understand a lot of things. And so you have the advancement of philosophy. And this is a quote from them that they would provoke, uh, promote enlightenment. A day of, it would be a day of happiness, tolerance, and progress. And they sharply criticized traditional Christian beliefs, such as our sinful nature due to Adam's fall, the rea reality of miracles. These are extremely important because this helps us to understand, like, like what is going on today, and we'll talk more about that, and uh, the fulfillment, the rejection of the fulfillment of biblical uh, prophecy and the divinity of Christ. They question scriptures, uh, infallibility, endorse a, a development of higher biblical criticism, which we want to look at. And uh, morality, human dignity, truth, and reason rest on the foundations other than God. Okay, we set God aside, and, and that started way back in the 1600s, and uh, we continue to go deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And, uh, 
So let, let's look at the Enlightenment era. And uh, again, this is from, from them. Uh, our only knowledge comes from human reason and not from revelation. Okay, so we're reading this. This is what man has to say, right? We're going to look at what God has to say about that. But right now we're looking, okay, this is what you have to say, all right? Our emphasis should be on nature and not on God. Um, <clears throat> the realm of ethics and morals, the highest good is equated to our human understanding of reason, and humans must conform to the concept of natural law or natural justice. In other words, what humans decide with their human reason was right is right. What they decide is was wrong is wrong. And we see that today. I remember flying with a guy in an airplane a number of years ago, and, and uh, I just asked, he was a young programmer, and I said, well, uh, how, how do you figure life out? Like, what makes life work for you? And just like that, he said, oh, to each his own. I said, okay, cool. Like, how does that work? And uh, he says, well, everybody, you know, decides what's right for them, and so that's their right, and other people have a different standard. And So as we push that thing, which I'm not going to take time into, but he started to realize, wait a minute, because uh, I made some comments. So, okay, so this this social group over here, if they decide this particular, you know, this particular uh, vice or sin is okay for them, uh, he goes, no, no, that went I said, wait a minute, you, you can't judge. You just said to each his own, so it's not up to you to judge, right? And, uh, and then I asked him, I said, you kind of wonder if if we need to put ourselves under the authority of somebody higher than ourselves to sort that out. And, uh, you know, by the time we landed, he said, you know what, I got to go back and do a lot of rethinking. I tried to stay in touch with him, you know, via email, but kind of faded off. So, case in point, Oakley <clears throat> claimed that true religion and ethical teaching did not come from the scriptures or from the church, but instead was acquired through the use of God-given human reason. God gave us good mind. Uh, you, you remember the phrase, you know, as, as we think, so we are. Uh, Christ was a good moral teacher, but not God. Tolerance of all religion was a prime virtue. Okay, I'm reading a lot here, but uh, it helps frame, and hopefully it helps us to understand. We've been on this journey for a long time. And uh, actually, Paul, in Second Timothy 3, he said, look, in the last days, it's going to be like this, you know. Man is going to really be wrapped up in himself, and there's going to be a form a form of religion looking, but there's no power in it. There's no reality. You know what? When I looked at the book of uh, Malachi, to me it was pretty frightful to recognize we have 400 years of silence after that. But guess what? They kept the religious institution going anyway, and uh, <clears throat> I think it should really should really be an exhortation to us that you know, we're capable of functioning very well in a form of what looks religious without God even present. We see that for 400 years, right? The silence and uh, God's me last message that we has that have is enough. Malachi there. <clears throat> okay. Postmodernism. Uh, it's a critique of modernism, okay? Remember I said everyone's going to look back. And because modern reject, because modernist rejection of traditional didn't go far enough, science not the only authority, and there is not one meta narrative. This is important. There's not one meta narrative, and by that, it's like how do we fit into the larger picture? 
Okay, when we talk about, you know, the larger story, the meta-narrative, the grand story, all that refers to as individuals, how do we fit into, you know what, all that dissolved with postmodernism, and why did it dissolve? I don't, I'm not trying to fit into a meta-narrative. I'm going to create my own reality. I don't have to, you know, it. I don't need that meta-narrative. I don't need somebody else to define how I fit into this existence that I have. And uh, you can see stuff all over that, right? And uh, numer numerous perspectives, deconstruction, we'll talk about that. And uh, <clears throat> no way to prove anything. Perception of, is everything. That drives me bonkers. Because every time we get into a discussion, well, they, well, their perception is this. And I'm like, it doesn't matter that that's what their perception. They need to per change their perception. It's not we cater to that perception. People's perception needs to be aligned with truth, but the difficulty is, okay, who's truth, right? And uh, so that therein lies the challenge. Uh, where we at? Uh, selective voluntary ignorance. And there's another one because you could lay the facts out, and then the trump card is that's true for you, but not for me. So to me, it's like willful ignorance. We just brush off whatever you know real truth that you have. Right, progress is seen as serving only a few at the expense of the groups, as seen as outsiders. We have globalism. Um, actually, we're in like globalism three, I think, right now. If modernism is capitalism, globalism is the creation of a single world market. You pay attention to what you're hearing today regarding capitalism. I'm not into politics and stuff here, but you know there is a major shift. There are for deep, deep challenges against the Constitution and these types of things. And, uh, you know, this is coming out of, again, an, a, a generation after postmodernism. We're going to see that uh, as we continue on, uh, there's still the concept that we're somehow going to pull ourselves out of this out of this uh, abyss into, into this utopia. We're going to see that at any time the source is within the self, of course, we know it's not going to do that. Uh, no universal foundation for truth, morality, human uh, dignity. So sometimes graphics help us, right? And uh, so you have pre-modern, there's a dot. Modern, it's going into some direction. And I think this is what we're all experiencing in postmodernism right now, right? It's like, and, and here's the thing, they're okay with that. And... Um, <clears throat> So postmodernism swims and even wallows in the fragmentary and chaotic currents of change as if it, that's all there is. And they've resigned themselves to say, okay, this is all there is. But I tell you what, um, if you look <clears throat> at what's going on, you realize it's not solving their problems at all. Uh, this, I think this pretty well defines, when I, I started to, to, to uh, Try to define some of these things. I had rise of self. Since Genesis 3, the rise of self has always been there, right? But I think what we're seeing today is really just a, a prolific, unapologetic, in-your-face, uh, say-anything-we-want. And uh, there's no holes barred today against what people will say in the public, on Facebook or whatever. And it's all because, you know, everything result, uh, revolves around me. And, uh, okay, here's what the grand philosophers have to say. Postmodern is dead, 
because it didn't address the human need. And so they're now they're coming to the end of this particular cycle, and we're going to look at what the next cycle is going to be. And uh, we have a major identity crisis. Again, this is not this is what they are saying. Oh, you have, we know that. You know, you have the uh, you know the sexual identity crisis. Uh, I don't know if I'm male or female. I'm trans, whatever. And uh, you see all this stuff coming in, and we have all these other groups. And uh, <clears throat> okay, uh, another big voice in in uh, in shaping culture. Again, this is his presentation from Scandinavia, and uh, I think it's good for us. Sometimes, some at times, to pull ourselves out of what we normally normally listen to and listen to what some of the other voices are saying, because those are the voices that are shaping society around us. Mind you, you don't want to park there too much, but uh, I, I find that's helpful for me, even as we're moving into cultures. Uh, where it could be pretty radical uh, uh, Islamic, is to just listen to some of their newscasters, their bloggers, their, you know, and uh, I tell our young people, listen to that, because as you step into the context, that's how they're viewing you. So here's his presentation. We need another uh, new world view. Uh, we need a, a new view of ourselves. We need a new view of our world. We need a... <laughs> new view of our mind, of society. And here's the thing, and just a couple years ago, they did a survey in UK, 89% of those 16 to 29 claim that their lives are meaningless. Okay, where has all this great cultural shift, these philosophies that we say are going to produce happiness, give us meaning of life? And when you look at, you know, each one, and that's why we showed them kind of going down, as you look at them, it's just pulling man deeper into the abyss, right? Further away from God. Anytime you marginalize God, and we've seen that taking place right here. And uh, so, so what? What I'm saying is, as we're seeing things, it, we should. It shouldn't be a head scratcher to us, and we shouldn't be saying we don't know what's going on. No, we do know what's going on. And uh, what we're seeing is a lot of symptoms, the result of people pushing God further and further out of their life and self being lifted up and self being uh, looked at as uh, the solution. <clears throat> okay, uh, the Internet will stage the, uh, set the stage for the next worldview. This is, this is pretty key, too, because this moves us away from just a Western uh, type of a culture, which is pretty much what we're talking about. Uh, but now we're going to have a worldview that's going to be shaped through the interaction with the Internet. Again, this, these are not mine. I've posted some of them. I've, I've spent time on each one of these different sites. And, uh, again, I wouldn't camp there, but if you want to see what's coming, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple quotes here. Uh, here's one. This comes from Game B. Let's just read a little bit what they have to say. We're gaining the power of God's but without love, wisdom, and discernment of God's. That is the self-stinctionary scenario. Welcome to Game B, a trans-contextual inquiry into a new social operating system for humanity. And then, of course, as you get down, it says, come play with us that we can learn to become wiser together. Okay, And uh, <clears throat> so you see that it's not going to get any better. 
You know, have they got to the point where they say, you know what, uh, we've got to go to a truth that's higher than ourselves. But yet, it actually, they, they start digging deeper. They look deeper into self to resolve the issues that they're that uh, they're trying to climb out of. You're going to hear a lot today in in the Barna. If you look at Barna surveys, et cetera, and it, a lot, you hear like, man, we've got a generation that really acknowledges that they're spiritual and they say they're spiritual. So we hear that and go, oh, man, that's pretty cool. We have a lot of opportunities, and we do. But here's a quote from Run right here. It says, uh, we are spiritual, but he's going to define what he means by spiritual, okay? And herein lies the, lies the problem. Every time I get into a religious debate of some kind, I, <clears throat> I am asked whether or not I believe in God. My answer, of course, confuses people. You see, I do not believe God in any sense of the word. However, I am very spiritual. So how does that work? Well, it's easy. Uh, my definition is, and I bolded and aligned it, see? So there you go. And I'm like, wait a minute, you don't get to define that. You know, you don't get to choose what sex you are. That's already determined. But see, we won't, there's no recognition of authority. And uh, so when we get to define everything, uh, you know, you can never get to the end of it. We're, so this is how he defines it. We are all connected in some way by an invisible energetic force. So this is what, and, and this is, <laughs> this comes from game B, right? They're the ones that are going to make the world a better place so they can pass it on much better than what the postmoderns do, Okay. In our order to raise our consciousness, our thinking should not be stifled and diminished by dogmatic ways, mainly religion. Religion tells us what to believe, and they don't allow room for questioning or thinking freely. Therefore, our consciousness cannot be raised as high as level as it could be. So um, you wonder how good is that going to go for them? We already know, right? So seven ways to be spiritual without being religious. I'm definitely not lifting up religion, right? All right. It's like, how do we get out of that cesspool, right? So, and this is what was challenging. We could go on and on for hours and look at at comments of those that the young people are looking for and uh, and saying, okay, these are the voices that are going to speak into shaping the culture next. So as we look at that, what does God have to say? <clears throat> Proverbs fourteen twelve. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it are ways of death. Um, I'm just going to go through a number of verses as I thought about these things. Genesis three, four, and six. And uh, the serpent said to the women, "You you'll not die." You know, God said this, but really, you that's not what will happen. Uh, for God knows that in the day that you eat it, your, di- your eyes will be open and you shall be as God, um, knowing good and evil. And when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make wise. You see that constantly in these different websites. If you do some research there, all the emphasis on we need a higher wisdom because whatever we're doing in the past is not working well, okay? Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. it says, he who trusts his own heart's a fool. So you want to look at self, you know, the journey to self is really a pretty short journey. Uh, but whoever walks wisely, uh, he'll be delivered. 
Jeremiah 17, 9 to 10, the heart is deceitful above all things. How can you trust self? And desperately wicked, who can know it? I, Jehovah, I search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 19. And for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the un- understanding of the perceiving ones. 16.2 of, of Psalms. O oh, my soul, you have said to Jehovah, you are my Lord. I have no goodness apart from you. Isaiah 47.13. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsel. Do that today. It's all in the statistics. Job 12.13. Uh, With him is wisdom and strength. He has wisdom and understanding. <clears throat> Colossians uh, 1.19. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. There isn't any life. There's no hope in self. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead. Job 12, 25. They grope in darkness without light. and He makes them to stagger like a drunkard. Proverbs 3, now a little bit more refreshing verses here. <laughs> trust in Jehovah with all your heart and don't lead to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Do not be wise your own eyes, but fear Jehovah. Depart from Isaiah 46, 9, 10, for I am God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times to the things that are not yet. So that God is, he, he understands at the very beginning, he understands where we're going, he understands the end. And uh, this is what God has to say about spirits. See, we don't define these things as we want to. And uh, because if we want to start doing that, we have 30 different definitions of, of what we say, right? But this is what God has to say, that God sanctifies us first by taking possession of our spirit through regeneration, and second, by spreading himself as a life-giving form, life-giving spirit, sorry, from, this, from our spirit into our soul to saturate and transform our soul, <clears throat> and last, by enlivening our mortal body through our soul and transfiguring us the body, our body by his <clears throat> life power. You see in, in Ephesians, I think that's the next one I have here, but uh, won't be able to read you. You're familiar with that, but realize that our spirit is dead. And until Christ comes in and regenerates us again, then he says he makes us alive. He brings us into meaningful relationship with life and meaningful relationship with himself. And uh, that's what God has to say about the Spirit. Um, I'm not going to have time to read all these, but I know as a family, uh, we memorize this verse, this whole psalm with our our uh, children. I'm going to read it. I'm going to take time to read it. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And uh, those are the voices that are speaking into these cultural shifts and has not stood in the way of sinners, and has not sat in a seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of Jehovah, and his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of the waters that brings forth its fruit in its season, and its leaf will not wither, and all that he does shall be blessed. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly won't shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in a congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. 
a good reminder for us. Uh, that's what God has to say. Um, the second thing that we'll spend the next uh, 15 minutes on is this undermining of the authority of God's word. And <clears throat> let's just look at six points here that uh, came out of the Enlightenment influences that we don't need God's word. We can reason with a good mind that we have and uh, <clears throat> rejection of absolutes. We define our own realities. I interpret the text by what it means to me. Tolerance to all beliefs, okay? Uh, since you choose what is true for you. And actually, I'm going to focus, and this is where we can fall into a really deep hole in higher criticism. But I do want to talk about that, and hopefully you've, I'm sure you've run into it. Um, but I'd like to just show, like, when did the higher criticism start coming in? And uh, we'll take a look. When we talk about higher criticism, we're talking about uh, biblical criticism, or it's like research, okay? Research that entails uh, higher and lower criticism. And so higher criticism examines the manuscripts uh, <clears throat> really to, to uh, get their best meaning, the background, the historical background, are the texts that we have, are, are they accurate tests? And all that is good research, right? I know when I study a book, I, I love to get the background first. Like what was the culture that was uh, uh, happening at, at the time that the book was written? And um, so higher criticism deals with the composition and uh, authorship. Questions are asked such as, when was it really written? Uh, who really wrote this text? Those aren't bad things, right? Uh, we want to know that if we can. <clears throat> and they interpret the passage by history within its context. And we're going to explain a little bit more uh, about that. Lower criticism is the research of the accuracy of the text. We have over 5,000 different manuscripts. They keep finding different ones, right? So I appreciate the guys that get those manuscripts, and they actually have a way to set them in order. Uh, they can take those manuscripts, and, and they can compare it and say, you know what, here it looks like this is maybe a, a, a uh, it's just a copy error. It doesn't change a lot of meaning, but we know those places in the Old Testament that where numbers are maybe a little bit different, and we recognize, okay, we didn't have a printing press back then. It just cranked the whole thing out and uh, hundreds of thousands of copies. But men sit there, and they just by hand uh, wrote the manuscripts one after the other, right? And so these of lower criticism, we appreciate the fact that they go in and, and they're, they're uh, carefully, meticulously, researching and comparing these different manuscripts. And uh, <clears throat> now here's the thing, of all the originals of the Bible text were available, of course, we wouldn't need any of the criticism, right? And uh, we wouldn't need textual criticism. We wouldn't need historical criticism. And uh, we would have all that kind of stuff right there. So higher criticism is like going to uh, Wikipedia and researching who posted this page. That's kind of what higher criticism would be, when lower criticism would examine kind of the accuracy of the page. Uh, but herein lies the problem. We're going to see when higher criticism came on, it was right in the age of enlightenment. That should tell us a lot. <clears throat> Many redact <clears throat> redaction critics and higher critics do not believe in the inspiration of Scripture 
they have a lot of education. Um, I spent some time just listening to professors on Yale, uh, at Yale University and Harvard. And I tell you what, you listen to them and they are so polished in their presentation and they are so godly and they totally undermine God's word. And I'm thinking these students that are sitting there and they're listening to all this academia and yet, you know what? The natural man cannot interpret God's word. But those are the ones that are influencing. And so my challenge and, and caution to us is when we pick up different books and commentaries, let's dig a little deep and find out where they're coming from because they're all not good. And I was talking to one of our members this, uh, this week, last week. And uh, an example is, you know, you'll have the authorities that are saying, when you read Proverbs, really all those are just quotes from the ancient world. You know, they're not inspired. Solomon, those were just quotes that, and that's a very, those, those, um, <clears throat> those, I don't want to call them truths, those concepts, that's what's being promoted, not just in secular colleges, such as Yale and Harvard, but actually in our seminaries, unfortunately. And, uh, and so what you end up with is you have, this is not the Word of God. It contains the Word of God. And so now you can see that everything is going to be subjective. And because uh, how are you going to discern what is the Word of God and what is not? Because you have your truth, I have mine. You can't get away from some of those core premises of how we're functioning today. So they believe that our Old Testament was simply a compilation of oral traditions and were not actually written until after Israel was taken place into captivity during the Persian Empire. And so, you know, as soon as you start doing that, you start undermining. And here's the thing. It's like, well, what, what transcripts are they going back to? Like, how, how, do, how do they have the credible information to make the decisions that they're making and promoting? And uh, even as you listen to them, this is a quote, okay? It's probably not verbatim, but it's pretty close. This is from the Yale professor as she just lays out, really, very polished, um, <clears throat> is that, uh, you know, that we recognize that some of these are guesses, but they're really good guesses. And then she goes into the Tower of Babel and talking about all the different languages, and she makes this comment, you know what, God was in a deep learning curve, and I'm like, are you kidding? But I'm telling you, these are, the, these are the authorities that are influencing the writings that we're picking up and reading today. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Christianity today is, they've fallen victim a lot of this kind of stuff. I don't even look at it today. And it's sad because if you follow their history at one time, they were very good. And you find a lot of different organizations out there that have picked up the wrong stuff and been influenced the wrong ways. And... Uh, <clears throat> This is 1967, a French critic, Roland Barthes, uh, quoted in an essay, The Death of the Author, okay? So he was concerned with how the authorship can limit the breadth and modes of the interpretation of a literary work. You see where this is going, right? All right? So in his estimate, he argues that once a work of literature is published, the readers, through their own interpretation, become the authors as to how it relates to the narratives of their own lives. Deconstructionalism. We get to define what it means to us. 
And then I tell you what, if you're an attorney, if you're writing HR policies, if you're whatever you're doing, the biggest challenge today is trying to word that document in a way that people picking up will actually read it to how you want it to mean and what you're trying to define, not what they're trying to redefine. We've had to take our doctrinal statement, and and we just had kind of years ago, you just had a one-line statement, and uh, it defines a, an important doctrine. But today, we have to have another paper with that that says, when we use this term, this is how we defined it. Because we were having people coming into our um, application process and say, yeah, I read it. I agree with it. And then as you get deeper, it's like, well, no, I don't really define it. like This is how I define it. Like, okay, let's back the truck up. And they felt like we did the bait and switch game with them. And uh, <clears throat> so this is when 1967, that was a long time ago. Some of you weren't even born then. And uh, But you know what? That way back then is what started to shape what we're deeply in right now. And we're seeing all these things take root. <clears throat> so higher criticism rejects anything that's supernatural because it's got they've got to they've got to be able to reason with it. And so any miracles, prophecies, etc. So <clears throat> their higher their starting point is doubt. Okay, presuming that the Bible is inaccurate, the Bible contains truth, but it's not the truth. Um, again, these are their quotes. The final authority on what God has said really has really said or done is not objective, but subjective and must be interpreted by the history that was that it was written in. This has nothing to do with historical grammatical hermeneutics. I think Trent did a pretty good job a couple months ago just saying, hey, this is when we talk about hermeneutics, when we talk about historical grammatical, and of course we don't have time to get into that. But we're not talking the same thing right here. Uh, get ahead of myself. Supernatural events do not occur. No prophecy. To them, like Cyrus mentioned in Isaiah, uh, proves that it was not written, that it was written much later because it couldn't have been written. He could have, there's no way he could have mentioned that 100 years before he actually came on a scene. So that proves that the book was written much, much later, probably during the Persian Empire. And, uh, so it all has to go with their natural reason. The Bible, in their view, is a mere human product, not of God's word to man, but a reflection of so social circumstances and not the word of God. That, this is really key right here. So if you pick up and you're reading in the Old Testament, it's not really telling us what God is like or what God thinks. It's telling us what Israel thought, and it's really not reflecting true reality of who God is. See the twist right there when they talk about going to the historical setting. That's uh, what they're talking about. Okay, let me read this here. It says, the divisions that we're seeing and experiencing around us, uh, politically and socially, they're not just random phenomenon, uh, that they, but they have their origins in theology, a theological disagreement about God and his word. And so when we see all these tensions and divisions happening around us today, they're not just political divisions, they're not social divisions, but the root of the real issue is how we're defining God and who is the real authority over man. And I think that's important for us to recognize. 
And uh, it's not going to get any better. I think what we're seeing today is that, uh, you know, this, we've been really blessed to be inside of a very protective bubble in the West. And uh, we're all feeling, we're all sensing that, you know what, uh, things are majorly changing. We're seeing globalization. We're seeing a one world order kind of, it's positioning, it's shaping. And uh, we've heard it before that, you know, a lot of people see the world falling apart. The believers should see the world falling from place, encouraged in these days. And we shouldn't be just going to go, I don't know what's going on. No, we know what's going on. Come on, pay attention and understand the times and see this whole progression that we've been on for many years. Okay, so what does God have to say? John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has one who judges him. The words that I have spoken, the same shall judge him. There will be an accountability. There will be a time where they stand before the white throne judgment. You know what? There's Nebuchadnezzar had to do that, right? The seven years journey that he was on. Psalms 119.89, forever, forever, O, jo- o Jehovah, your word is settled in the heaven. Matthew 24.35. The heaven and the earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Revelation 22, 18, and 19. For I testify together to everyone who, has, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that have been written in this book. If anyone takes away from these words of the book of the, this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things which have been written in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Daniel. You know what? I'm not going to read that whole passage. You know the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, you know, at the end, his conclusion, you know, he recognized that uh, there was a Most High that he was accountable to. First Peter 1.17, For he received honor and glory from God the Father when he was born to him <coughs> a voice from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, then he goes on to say, we have heard this voice being born from heaven. I was right there. I heard it being with him in the holy mountain too, in the transfiguration. I love this part right here. We also have a more sure word of prophecy. What is that word of prophecy? And that, that is our anchor point to which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the day star rises in your heart. Knowing this, that no interpretation of Scripture came into a being of its own private interpretation. And for prophecy was not born at any time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke and born along by the Holy Spirit. If you're trying to go back and you're trying to sort out, okay, who was the author, when was the time, when does it, what does this really mean? Uh, what is the credibility of this? If you're just a secular, natural man, you'll never, you'll, you can't speak into it. And, uh, you know, their, their spirit is dead. They're not alive unto God. They don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit to help them understand. We're so blessed, right? We talk about that often. We have the Holy Spirit in, in John chapter 14 through 16, where Christ says, man, I must send a a comforter, just like me. He's going to be just like I am. And he's going to guide you into all truth. There's so many more things I want to tell you, but you're not, I can't right now. 
and that God progressively revealed um, documentary hypothesis, which was a challenge to the whole Pentateuch is where higher criticism actually began to take root. And those secular people that analyze literature, uh, any piece of secular literature, took the same thing and went through Genesis. And as they went through Genesis, they were like, this has to be written by different authors because people refer to God as different names. And uh, if you take time to look at that, it really, you see, okay, right there is the start of a journey where man began to pull apart God's word. And because these men were, they were brilliant. They were brilliant secular men, but they were not spiritual. And yet because of their brilliance, people began to follow them and they became the authority and higher criticism began to take more root. And by the way, higher criticism came on the scene and developed right at the same time as Darwinism. So put those things together. You see the attack on God's word and even at the, the foundations in Genesis. <clears throat> um, read, I got one more slide now. This is what God has to say. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Those statistics, if they would humble themselves and recognize God created me as I am, he put me here. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Uh, he's not a disconnected, aloof God. He's involved. Uh, if they would come to that, they would recognize, you know what? Now they would understand life. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, <clears throat> much more pure than gold, sweeter than honey and a comb. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, stated this after he was in the pastorate a number of years. He said, It is my prayer that no man shall ever stand at this pulpit as long as the time lasts, who does not desire to have all that he does based upon this book. For this book does not contain the word of God. It is the word of God. And I'll just end with that. My challenge to us today is pay attention to where, <laughs> to what you're reading and make sure you understand where it's coming from. And uh, the second part is however we can get God's word in our life, do it. Because all these other voices are influencing us. I tell you, it should, it should grieve us and bring us to tears when we see really what's going on in the Christian church today. And, uh, and then the other thing, we should be thankful for the assembly here that I think has kept very true uh, to God's words. Sorry for going over. Thank you.